listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single-origin coffees. They're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high quality beans and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game. I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code JDP10. That's jdp one zero and you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. Today in the show, we have Gary Basin. Gary has spent 15 plus years working at the intersection of technology and finance, from building an HFT firm to advising crypto startups, and finally building his own current fintech startup to simplify the mortgage process. Enjoy my conversation with Gary Basin. Gary, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. Well, it's great to have you. So the first question I like to ask guests is going back to 2008 global financial crisis. We saw a lot before that. Up until that time, we had uh, SNL crisis, the Asian crisis, the uh, Russian crisis in 98, but nothing was quite like 2008 (laughs) compared to maybe what we're experiencing now. But take us back and uh, tell us about what you were doing during that time. Yeah, so I remember it pretty vividly. I was still in school uh, at University of Michigan, and which was kind of good because I had a lot of free time. Um, like I wasn't spending much time on class, and I was already working uh, with uh, with my with a mentor that ended up starting a a firm with after school. But at the time I was kind of just working with him, um, automating his trades, developing new trades. And at the time we were actually with a hedge fund. Um, one of the big, big funds in Chicago that we were, uh, kind of, we formed like a portfolio group inside and we were just trading all kinds of futures. So like basically every liquid product, um, on in the U S like mostly the CME, and I just, I was writing code for him and we had some, some basic automation at the time, but um, nothing, nothing super sophisticated. It was mostly like supporting manual trading. And our main product was, was interest rate futures. So like we were pretty much sitting in like 
the epicenter of of how like the whole mess that played out um and like i was just glued to it i mean i was spending 12 hours a day either reading about everything from you know mortgage-backed securities to the individual banks and um how it's affecting the funding markets or obviously like just watching the markets themselves like i mean some of the craziest still to this day like some of the craziest trading i've ever seen um and it, yeah, it was it like really left a deep mark in in my brain. Like wow, like this these things, these markets that seem you know so reliable and and uh, kind of like predictable in the sense that oh, like you know they're here, they're gonna they're gonna be here tomorrow. Like actually, they can just totally disappear. <laughs> um, <laughs> even this thing that seems super liquid and reliable, like you might not get a bid the next day, not for the size that you want. Um, and it was like pretty sweet to have, I mean, you know, made bad and good to have that kind of early in my, in my career to have that experience. And it, it's like pretty, pretty great foundation, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I remember like I was doing a little bit of trading on my own, um, just like messing around with stocks. And I remember the day that bear, uh, traded at two dollars. I was like, I have to buy this. Like, I don't, I don't know what this <laughs> thing is worth. Nobody knows what this thing is worth. But like, it just feels like two dollars is too cheap. And I got got lucky with that trade and sold it at like eight or ten or whatever, wherever. Like it, it bounced. But I just have that memory of buying it like in class. I was like, this is nuts. Like, I got to throw a couple of grand at this. <laughs> And that's and that was even before obviously the Robinhood app, and so you were you were using something more akin to one of the traditional brokerage uh, accounts and trading on your laptop or something like that, or was it on a smartphone? Yeah, yeah, that was um, interactive brokers. This was, uh, I think, like the iPhone had maybe just come out. Um, yeah. So I don't. We were not trading on smartphones back then, if I remember. But yeah, interactive brokers on a laptop, um, which <laughs> fun, funny enough, it's pretty much the same as it was back then. <laughs> I don't think you could tell a difference. That's funny. Yeah, and I was in college and actually just kind of about to graduate during that time. And I remember even trading before that, getting quotes, uh, stock quotes on the BlackBerry and things like that. And the, mm-hmm. the internet was really slow on depending on what platform you were using. Um, so it's, mm-hmm. you know, we're pretty spoiled now with the speed of the internet. So even going back further, what got you interested in trading or was there a book or you know, reading certain websites or what got you interested even before that? Um, it must've been the internet. I mean, I was like an internet nerd, um, from childhood and, uh, like taught myself how to program like not super well, but you know, it could kind of hack together the basics. And I think it was just this, uh, fascination with money and how to make it. It seemed like something that would be useful and, you know, everyone else kind of wanted it. Um, so I got interested in money and trading was kind of the, one of the more direct ways, it's, you know, maybe hard, maybe easy, but you could make a lot of money really fast, uh, which was, you know, kind of a siren song for many people. 
Um, and then I went down the rabbit hole of, oh, this is like a puzzle that if you're smart, you can solve it. And, uh, you know, I considered myself smart, whether right or wrong. And then kind of one thing led to another and uh, spent a lot of time on message boards, like specifically Elite Trader. And which was mostly a lot of like just nonsense. Um, you know, it's kind of like the Wall Street bets of its day. Um, just, you know, right. retail traders saying kind of ridiculous things. But one out of a hundred or one out of a thousand people on there was just like a very successful professional. And you could learn a lot from them. And I actually met my, for, my first uh, trading mentor on there. So we chatted on Elite Trader and then we started chatting a lot um, on the phone outside. And eventually I just went out to uh, Vegas and met him and hung out with him. And he started teaching me some of the stuff he was doing. Interesting. And what types of trading were you involved with early on? Were you just trading equities or were you uh, looking at options as well? Or And what types of markets? Yeah. Um, I mean, I kind of dabbled in everything just because you, as a beginner, you kind of have this uh, <laughs> glazed look in your eyes. You know, everything is like the, the next opportunity is right around the corner. And like, you know, if it's not an equity, right. then it's an option. Then it's not an option, then it's future. So, you know, it did a little bit of everything. Um, most, all that mostly gave me is just kind of like this broad exposure of here's all this stuff and here's kind of how it works. Um, but when I actually started trading, in a way that uh, that was profitable, that was in equities. So like U.S. Um, cash equities. Interesting. And let's take this to present day. And as we've seen a lot of market ap- action just kind of whipsawing up and down and some pretty extreme volatility. What's your view on some of the current market action that's happening? We saw the 10 year get down to, I think something like 30 some bips. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it was pretty crazy at the time. And it's come back up. You can pull it up here at 70 or 80 bips maybe, but what's your view on some of the things happening now in, in markets? I think it's crazy. Uh, I mean, it's like its own, its own, it, its own version of crazy, right? Like we had some of the b- biggest moves of my life in equities for sure. Um, probably some of the interest rate markets. I, I don't follow them as closely as I used to, uh, but kind of my general macro sense of what's going on is just, just this fear of uncertainty. Like I don't think the market is uh, pricing in a depression so much as you know, it doesn't, we don't know what could happen, whether it's now or, or six months from now, it's like hard to see what this new normal might look like. Um, and I, I think I, I remember everyone kind of having that sense in 08 as well. It's like, well, wait a minute, these banks that kind of make the world go round, what if they just disappear? Like what could go wrong? Um, and like, yeah, a few did disappear and, and then we found a way to kind of make the other ones hobble along and it turned out to be fine after some time. And I think the same thing is going to happen now. Like, you know, this, this outside shock of this virus, like it's going to cause a bunch of disruption and a bunch of stuff is going to fail and 
Um, maybe some industries will never come back to what they used to be, but, uh, at some point there's going to be like a lot more clarity about what this future is going to look like. And by then, like the, you know, the bottom is, is long, long since in probably at least in equities, um, interest rates are like more interesting than me here, just because there's the, the eagerness of printing money and like handing it out. Uh, like it's the kind of stuff that people were joking about 10 plus years ago. Like, Oh, like, you know, why don't they just print money and give it to everybody? Like, like, God, we'll never do that. Well, I, it turns out we are. And like, nobody really (laughs) an eyelash. Um, it's like the Overton window. Um, like, you know, the, the, the types of things that are kind of normalized to talk about, or like that might actually be something that could happen, like has shifted so much. Um, over the past 10, 20 years where like, yeah, now we're just printing money, handing it out. And like, the question is how much are we going to print? Like, when are we going to print some more and everything's fine. Right. And that, that, that kind of, uh, at the same time, we're talking about negative interest rates. So it's like such this, this is such a weird dichotomy and, you know, this is nothing new, obviously, but it's pretty fascinating to experience. I mean, I, I, I used to think that inflation was right around the corner. Um, like many other people coming out of 08. And I just kind of dropped that over the years. Um, and now it's starting to kind of come back. Like, I don't think we're going to have some crazy inflation, you know, in the next few months or maybe even the next year. But I could see this kind of eagerness to inject liquidity, um, just like slowly eroding away at our ability to kind of control um, control it. You know, and like the will just might not be there a few years down the line. And I just would want to make sure I'm owning some gold and Bitcoin at that point because it might get pretty ugly pretty fast. Yeah, that's one of the themes on the podcast is this pull between inflation and deflation. And as you mentioned, back in 2008, a lot of people thought when the Fed injected all that liquidity and started doing all the quantitative easing and, and injecting money into the system that it would cause a lot of inflation and um obviously that did not show up in kind of the cpi or consumer price inflation that people usually think about it showed up in asset price inflation which is which some people also debate uh whether that really led to that or not but i think when you look at different things coming down, whether it's kind of an anti-globalization where more countries are making kind of their own Mm -hmm. products and services, you know, that could be a catalyst to lead to more inflation. And as you mentioned, this paradigm shift to more fiscal policy, whether it's uh, different flavors of MMT and people talk about UBI, universal basic income. So um, I think there's that that issue of of actually giving people money to to go out and spend that that will definitely lead to some type of inflation and then that, that the question is is we haven't really seen the the um wage price inflation um or sorry just the wage inflation um and so i think that's something interesting to unpack yeah now, you mentioned sure. gold and bitcoin so we actually met um, 
a, a kind of the cross section of, of a couple of fintech topics. And when you look at Bitcoin, the halving is coming up in, let's see, a little over a month. Um, what's your thoughts on on uh, Bitcoin right now and how the system has kind of come so far and where, where it might be going next? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think even just a couple of years ago when we uh, met up, I think we were just kind of talking about, oh, you know, Bitcoin's becoming the next or, you know, crypto, if you want to have an open, a more open mind, is becoming the next asset class. And it was kind of mm-hmm. like, yeah, this is happening. Like, it's, you know, we're hearing stories. And I think it's basically there. I mean, I think just watching Bitcoin trade for better or worse um, in this environment, it's traded just like a risk on asset, which is maybe not what people expected. But uh, I think in some way that's, that's a good sign. Like there's, a, you know, I think recently you're seeing Bitcoin super correlated with S&P. Like mm-hmm. it's unmistakably so. And that means to me, like institutions are, are using it in their portfolio, right? Like when they're, when they're putting risk on Bitcoin's part of the, part of that basket. So I think that that just means you're, it's become it's become sufficiently accepted and now there's this going to be this big wave of um everyone's going to own it to some degree and i think it's we need to be careful and not underestimate how big of an effect that can be and you know but also how long it could take it might take 10 years um but it's definitely happening and so i think you're going to have this really long secular shift of money flowing in to bitcoin and that's obviously going to be going to give you some price support. Um, but on the other hand, like at least at this very moment, <clears throat> I don't see it shooting up because of that. Like it would, it doesn't really make sense to to front run like such a long term secular shift. And of course, we're not. What we saw is the opposite. Like um, Bitcoin crashing with with the equity market um, because it's a liquid asset that people can sell. And it's not, it's not cash. Like, it's not super stable um, and reliable in the same way that a dollar or a treasury bill is. Uh, at least from the perspective of most people, where cash is the thing that's going to pay rent the next month or whatever. Yeah, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Now, do you have any opinions on the having coming up? Whether news is already priced in, or any infor- any opinions about that? Yeah, I mean, I. You know, I, I think like in theory, it should be priced in. I think there might be some like some kind of technical stuff going on that I just don't really follow. And because of that, you you might see a price shift. I, I mean, my gut would tell me that it's not the mining is does not generate enough supply to make a meaningful dent in the like supply demand dynamics at this point. Yeah, there's just like too much volume flowing through it. I think, yeah, you know, yeah. early on, especially like, yeah, that, that could have had a significant impact. And over time as the volume has just exploded um, and the amount of coins being mined has obviously fallen. Uh, it's just like on the margin, you'd expect it to matter less. 
Yeah, and it's interesting that over 18 million have already been mined. So out of the total 21 million right. cap, they're they're obviously it's a very long tail emission. So it's the amount of mining still yet to be done is going to go on for a long time. But it, when you look at the 18 million already mined, then you would think, depending how many kind of strong hands or, or, or holders there are. I think that also factors in because you mentioned there's also just a lot of people trading it. So there's not necessarily people just holding on to it. There obviously are some percentage of that, but if people are going to be trading it like any other asset, then, you know, maybe this, that supply demand piece doesn't matter as much either. Yeah. I think as, especially as it becomes more of just a normal part of an institutional portfolio, like, those dynamics of funds going in and out are going to be what set the price (laughs) more so than the minor supply. And as far as gold versus Bitcoin, do you think there's room for both in a portfolio and how, how do you kind of look at both of them in, in uh, comparison? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I own both. I, I think right now gold is just not replaceable. Um, I think in the long run, I, I, I think in the very long run, Bitcoin can, can serve that role better, but right now it just, it's not the same type of asset, no matter how much we want it to be, or like in theory, how much it is, it's just not the kind of thing where the, the average other counterparties and be like, oh yeah, like that's a valuable thing. I think you have to get to that point of acceptance before Bitcoin trades more like a flight to quality asset. Yeah, and I think that timeline could be longer than people think even, but um, you never know. Uh, I think as as we talked about with the MMT and the UBI and some of the inflation and money printing, this whole debacle that we're going through right now is kind of really speeded up that whole, not just the narrative, Mm -hmm. but the actual actual implementation of some of these policies that are being rolled out. And it's just the beginning of of it right now. So um, you never know, I guess. Now let's pivot and change gears a little bit to uh, machine trading and algo trading. These are some topics that you're quite familiar with. Let's talk about some of the market action that's been happening to, well, without naming names, there's been some articles and some news floating around about not necessarily bailouts, but injecting liquidity into certain, not not just funds, but uh, firms that are doing market making. Let's say, <laughs> what's your right. view on on that on the in, on that industry? You know where it's been, where it's going, and and how hard they've been hit with some of these market dislocations. And of course, this is right. some of this uh, speculative, but. Yeah, yeah, because I'm not super close to it anymore. Um, but okay, I mean, I think you're referring to treasury repos, basically, which have been under stress since like September of last year, I think, if I recall, were the first kind of um, issues there. And uh, it's, I mean, it's similar in many ways to what... Um, LTCM was doing in the 90s. I mean, not nearly mm-hmm. at the same degree of leverage, 
not nearly with the same degree of hubris, <laughs> but um, I mean, they're one of their big trades was the on the run, off the run treasury trade where the um, kind of right. like the treasury that has been <clears throat> most recently issued is more liquid and trades at a premium. And then as the next mm -hmm. one gets issued, it kind of falls off. And there's, uh, you know, the market benefits from the off the runs being uh, like being liquid, you know, like there's other holders of these off the runs that, um, you know, they want to sell at some point and it's, they definitely appreciate having a, a more liquid market. But, you know, how much is that worth to, <laughs> to the world, I think is like one of the questions mm -hmm. we should ask and how much should we be subsidizing um, some of these market makers who are putting on a position, which if they can hold it, um, is going to be profitable. Like there's really no, it's really hard to imagine a world where, uh, you know, one treasury that is like expired, you know, expiring a couple months after another is going to somehow be defaulted on. Um, the problem is that to hold it with leverage, you need to be able to, uh, finance that position and the financing is a function of mark to market. And we're getting back to this, the same story that we hear over and over. Um, so how much of that should be basically subsidized, right? Like, should we make, make the market more efficient and whoever's making it more efficient, um, you know, for, for our definition of efficient or like some theoretical definition, um, they're making money from it. And at the same time, should we be like helping them make more money? Um, I mean, I would say ideally, no, ideally we, we don't subsidize that kind of, uh, like behavior because they're already can do it profitably. Um, the problem is if you don't subsidize it, then uh, you can get these kind of nasty disruptions, which have ripple effects. And so you're mm -hmm. kind of stuck in this situation of, well, you can regulate it more. Um, but then it's like, how do we regulate it without causing, uh, you know, shortages of liquidity in other places where, we maybe didn't expect and don't want, um, or you can kind of continue to, to come in and save the day, maybe do it selectively. Like I'm worried that you do create a significant amount of moral hazard at this point. Like you have a bunch of these trading firms that are um, pretty big and have a decent amount of cash. But I mean, I think it's a stretch to consider them like systematic, systemically important in the same sense that you would consider like bank of America systemically important. So right. while it would be a mess, if one of these guys um, got forced to unwind and blow up because treasury off the runs got too cheap. Um, yeah. Like it would cause some disruptions, but like, it's not like your grandma's going to lose her, like, you know, her savings account. Yeah. So, yeah, and I saw an article that the I think the Fed was going to be helping backstop money markets and kind of injecting some liquidity there. Is is there any issue there with money market funds? And back in 08, it was it was the whole breaking the buck thing, and yeah. then some of those rules got changed, and now it looks like there's really no dangers right now. But I think that was the area people were looking, maybe not. Uh, as far as banks, but uh, for money market mutual funds for grandma's savings yeah. type of thing. 
Right. Yeah. And, I mean, I think you're, it's, yeah, it's like a, it's a spectrum, right? So you're going from something that should have no risk to something that should, should have some risk. And then we kind of make it go away. And similarly, I mean, you're having them backstop investment grade bonds. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't see why we should be, uh, you know, like, yes, they're saying, okay, we need to provide liquidity because it should be there. Um, but Mm -hmm. you know, maybe that's, that's risk that should be priced by the market, you know, like that's what it's Mm -hmm. there for. Yeah. And as far as the kind of the nitty gritty of how behind the scenes things work with these, this type of leverage, is this similar to the way that a retail investor would get a margin call or how do the, with these prop shops, when they put on leverage, where are they getting the leverage and how does the mechanics of that work? Yeah, it's, it's basically the same and the mechanics will depend on the asset. Like if it's Mm -hmm. something super simple, like you're trading futures on the CME, um, they just have like, here's how, here's the margin requirement and here's the, how it's calculated. And, um, here's how we're going to demand the capital. Uh, it gets a little bit more murky, um, when you're talking about, uh, kind of non-exchange traded or, um, more, uh, like non-centrally cleared assets, let's say. Right. So like, um, obviously, you know, some random corporate bond or even an off the run treasury, uh, you, you don't have hard and fast rules necessarily. So you're going to your, um, mm-hmm. to your broker, uh, or whoever's financing your book for you. Usually a prime broker will do that. And they're kind of just setting terms. Like they have capital and they have mm-hmm. their own book and they're extending credit lines to you. So some, you know, everyone's kind of passing the risk around and everyone's getting, passing on whatever terms they can get at the moment. Right. But at some point it all kind of shakes out for most of these assets into the repo market, um, which is a mix of interbank and non-bank. Everyone's kind of getting their risk adjusted rates and which obviously gets, gets all wacky, you know, in, in this environment when, market starts trying to differentiate between who's a risky counterparty and who's not. Whereas in, in, in a quiet environment, a norm, we'll call it a normal environment, um, even like a pretty lightly capitalized prop, prop firm can get the same type of repo financing as like a giant hedge fund, which will be very similar to what a big bank will get, which, you know, and that that's going to impact the amount of leverage they can put on, on some of these cash products. And and the amount of leverage that they put on depends on the product itself. Is that right? Or is yeah, it usually so, pretty standard? Mm-hmm. No, it'll it'll depend on the product. So especially when you're talking about an unregulated entity, like um, a bank, obviously is is limited to has all kinds of limits on its leverage and how much capital it needs. Um, kind of at the at the high level, yeah, as well as a bunch of other limits, right? But like a hedge fund, its limits are really set by external parties. So um, for futures, mm-hmm. the limits are baked in by the by the exchange, the the uh, 
the uh, the exchanges the exchanges rules, or it'll be their prime broker if they're getting some kind of financing, right? So, in theory, somebody could float you the cash to cover the margin on on your position at at a futures exchange. Um, similarly, for right. for equities and you know any other product. So, somebody even with the most restrictive product, somebody has to put up money, but it might not have to be you. And, the, and that works when they have money and when, when they're tight on funding themselves, then you might get forced to unwind. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And do you have any opinions on some of these new exchanges that are out and coming out? So I'm pulling up the web, the website of IEX, which is IEX trading. And then the other one I was reading about a while ago was the long-term stock exchange. So there, there's been some very small kind of bits of innovation in that area. Obviously, too, I've been hearing about more fixed income trading becoming electronic. So you have kind of that piece, market access, those type of things. But any comments on some of the innovation or lack thereof going on in that area? Um, I mean, I, yeah, I haven't really, I don't follow it super closely, but I haven't heard of any kind of like, wow, that's like a, you know, a, a clever way of improving market dynamics. Um, like yeah. the last quote unquote innovation that I heard was the speed bumps. And I mean, as far as I could tell, that seems to be counter productive like it i don't think it achieves um what they want to achieve so i i, I read a little bit about the long-term stock exchange and i think like their their objective is like very interesting like i've i've often mused about this world where what if you could get everyone to just uh you know clear across all their trades in a single daily auction across all products at, you know, every day. Um, and you'd probably just make a lot of work go away that shouldn't really, doesn't really need to get done and mm -hmm. probably encourage long-term holding of assets because you squeeze out a lot of the opportunity from trading. But I don't really know, like, I don't know if that mechanism will work. I don't know if their mechanisms will work. Like, I think there's just this inherent drive to squeeze out opportunity um, wherever you can find it. And I don't know if you can just kind of make it vanish by a set of rules. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a debate kind of broadly in the fintech community itself, how much innovation is actually going on. So some of the quote unquote innovation is really kind of around the margins and maybe it's UI or UX Part of the reason is you have these banks and brokerage firms and whether even in real, real estate, you have all these different kind of incumbents who have a, a huge market share in these legacy systems that are, you have to kind of work with some of these legacy systems in order to implement whatever these new fintech companies are trying to implement. Not always, but that's kind of been the general theme. And, and I know you've done a lot of work and research in that area. So let's talk a little bit about that and where your opinions are there and where you think the future could be going. Yeah. I mean, especially as as when you start talking value. about, yeah. 
Right. Yeah. Especially like that, that really rings true to me in the um, like consumer facing fintech space for sure. Yeah. Um, Almost all of these companies are just kind of uh, for lack of a kinder way of putting it, like, you know, putting lipstick on a pig, like they're making maybe a, a nicer interface for the consumer. Um, if they, if they're trying to just get from A to B, like you can make it a little bit easier, but the underlying guts of the thing, no, very few of these companies, maybe none other than um, crypto companies have, have been able to really change uh, how the underlying aspects of the thing work. Um, and so they're all kind of relying on the existing plumbing of the system, whether that's ACH or Fedwire um, or the way that, you know, in, in my startup space uh, for mortgages, like the way that mortgages are underwritten and fulfilled and sold, like none of that's changed. Uh and obviously not to not to say that there isn't like a lot of value to be added by making things easier to do um i think that that those are valuable companies and like valuable like worthy tasks i just think that it's just the very tip of the iceberg like what's the last really like major innovation in let's call it fintech like maybe the atm like i don't I don't know if that was before or after credit cards. Like when has there ever been uh, like not in our lifetime? I mean, maybe, maybe the P to P payments rails that are kind of sitting on top mm-hmm. of ACH, um, mm-hmm. like PayPal, it's hard to say. So I think like, I think we're now kind of entering this time when like people realize this and I think they're realizing how to do it. It's harder than kind of spinning up a five person startup. Um, it takes more time. Uh, but I, th- I think people are not- like realizing how to do it and realizing the opportunity is like so big that they're kind of starting to embark on doing that. Yeah. And I think when you look at certain niches, like, uh, the Bloomberg terminal, there was a couple startups I was tracking, trying to disrupt that who didn't get very far. Um, right. And so, like you said, what, some of these consumer facing, whether it's an app or a certain way of accessing the old rails, I think there's, you know, there's some definitely some interesting companies and in, uh, making it easier for people to access services or just a very streamlined kind of process, which kind of makes sense. But upending the guts of the system, we haven't really seen too much. Now, as far as the going back to kind of the trading and some of the uh, innovations there. Is there any other thing you're excited about in kind of that world as far as innovations? I know every time I read about something there, usually it's regarding fixed income and trying to make mm-hmm. that more electronic instead of guys just picking up the phone, guys and gals picking up the phone and, and, and making trades yeah. where that's where most of the volume was. But when you look at market access and uh, I believe trade web, what, are there any other things you're excited about there? No, I mean, I haven't really followed it largely because we never really traded uh, like a lot of those cash products that are more um, illiquid. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I get the sense that 
it's going to happen and it's going to happen in a pretty boring way. Kind of how like options, you know, there was a time when I think some people thought options will never go electronic. Like it's always going to be bros on the floor, like yelling at each other. Um, but it, yeah. you know, it's pretty obvious to me, like, yeah, this is going to go electronic. They just need to figure out the right user interface and figure out how to get market makers comfortable doing it through a computer. Um, and it's just, it just takes time, but the result is, you know, pretty boring. It's just, that's the same, same product. You can just, you get better off around the screen and it executes right there. Um, so I think it's what, I mean, I would, I would expect to see there. And again, like I'm pretty uninformed with that space in particular. Um, I would expect it to just look, it's kind of like the tail end of the, um, digitization of of markets that we initially saw with equities you know starting in the charles schwab days i think the tail end is these kind of uh, more uh, more uh illiquid um otc you know fixed income some of some of the derivatives you know credit default products stuff like that i mean i, I think it's just a matter of time before it all goes electronic and it's going to go the same way that all the other ones have so far Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And let's bring the conversation back to kind of where we originally started with the what we're going through right now uh, with COVID-19 and kind of where the economy might go. And so I'm reading here that there's a lot of debate right now of when things are going to start to open up and that'll probably be a slow and gradual process and when some of these quarantines end. But I was thinking about how it's really hard to compare because we haven't really experienced anything like this before, but thinking back to nine 11, which was a tragic event in the country and obviously a lot of deaths and, and heartache and, in a lot of sadness throughout the country. I wasn't in New York at the time, but I was, um, I remember just the way people were feeling and interacting with each other and, uh, kind of coming together. Um, and then as we talked about 2008, this, the dis- dysfunction and market dislocations. And as we talked about mainly the banks and, um, just trying to shore up the system and make make sure there was enough liquidity to keep the whole system running. But it kind of reminded me, it's kind of really a mix of both of those in a way mm-hmm. um, because we have a lot of people dying. We have a lot of sadness and we also have, you know, like we talked about, we don't have banks that are in trouble. We have maybe some shadow banks, part, parts of the shadow banking system. We have some, Definite, definite market dislocations, um, but the Fed is pump, pumping in liquidity again, and it doesn't look like we're going to have any bank failures, at least as we're talking right now. This is Tuesday, April 7th. <laughs> we, I, well, I did see what uh, it had one small bank. Yeah, there was a small bank. Um, yeah, and I think this year, we I think that was the third maybe. And in the past three or four or five years, I, I think we, we've hardly had any. I was watching the FDIC tracker website like about a, six months or a year ago. Some, someone sent me the link. But um, so anyway, as far as major banks, uh, I think they're safe for now. So as far as getting back to work and having the, the economy start up, what, what, what are your thoughts here going forward? Yeah. Uh, 
It's a tricky question. Um, I've spent, you know, against my own desires, uh, like a lot of time since probably February, um, just trying to figure out what's happening. Like I, I remember uh-huh. on Twitter watching this, watching the stuff happening in Wuhan and the way that they did that lockdown and like it sent a chill down my spine. I'm like, that's, this is a giant city. Like people in the West might not know or care about like some random city in China, but it's like bigger than New York. It's not a joke. Um, and yeah. yeah, like you could say they're overreacting or, you know, some kind of like, we don't even know if this is true, but it just seemed like a very big deal at the time. But like, it, and just watching this slow motion train wreck play out, uh, I, you know, I, it was easy to know that that there was going to be some kind of quarantine coming. It's hard to know what's going to happen next. I think, especially because there's no clear um, plan coming from the top down. Um, it's not obvious to me that that would even help, to be honest. Um, at least at this yeah. point, I do think that there's we have like advantages and disadvantages. I think with the U.S., it's going to be much harder to do like large scale test and trace the kind of stuff that you can do in a more um, contained contained country uh, in a country with like fewer issues over um, privacy and surveillance. I mean, even if we did give up all of our privacy, um, I mean, we have a lot of undocumented people in this country, like for better or worse. <laughs> I mean, how are you going to track them? <laughs> you know, this isn't like South Korea where you, you have everyone in a database with their cell phone number or whatever. So I think there's just like some serious logistical challenges that we don't know how to solve to, you know, and maybe you don't need to do it perfect. Um, maybe we can kind of contain it for the most part over the next year um, until hopefully we have a vaccine or treatment gets way better, but we don't know if that's going to happen. And um, mm-hmm. I'm kind of, uh, I, if anything, I think that people are a little bit too optimistic now. Um, I think there was like this wave of pessimism and maybe it's because I take my cue largely from the market, but I think like there was this wave of like, Oh my God, this is the end of the world. Um, I don't think it, it is. I don't think this thing is lethal enough. I think it's going to cause a disruption and we're going to figure out how to get out of it, but I don't really know how or when. I mean, I could see it very easily where people just kind of get sick of sitting around at home and through the summer it's, you know, I think, I think people are going to start, start socializing more. And I do think that heat and sunlight are, is going to reduce transmission rate. Um, Mm -hmm. and so like basically combination of this lockdown and just the dynamics of warmer weather and sunlight and people being outside more, um, I think it's going to look like everything's fine. Uh, you know, maybe starting a month from now when like deaths start plateauing and falling and new cases have already been falling for a while. But 
now I'm kind of thinking more ahead. Like what is, you know, do we just go back to normal and then um, we like run into a wall come October, November? Like I think we need to be really careful planning further out than a few weeks right now. Yeah. And do you have any thoughts on what's going on as far as with some of these stimulus packages so far, most people are going to be getting $1,200. It looks like, and, or, well, I guess the majority of people, if depending on your income, um, that could be either zero or somewhere in between. Um, as far as the societal impacts of being cooped up and, and some of the hate, not hatred, but some of the, um, Anger going back to the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement and some of these other movements, Tea Party and things. Mm-hmm. Do you see some of the civil disobedience and unrest coming, increasing going forward? Or do you think that they're just going to keep shoveling money on people to keep them happy? Or how, how do you think that will play out? <laughs> yeah, I, that's that's been like kind of the main thing on my mind um, the past week or so. Uh, especially starting to see some of the unrest in the um, other countries that have gotten it, like in Italy in particular, I think they're starting to see uh, yeah. looting at the grocery stores and they don't, they don't have the same kind of freedom that we do being a reserve currency um, country. Um, so I'm more worried about other countries uh, that don't have the same power that we do. And I think that you will see, you're going to see massive unrest somewhere. I don't know, you know, where it might, it might be more likely to be in Europe than in India, even like, I don't know. I think a lot depends on the, the risk aversion of the population. Um, maybe like yeah, the degree to which there is a middle class. It's hard to say. Uh, I mean, I think the other, the other thing you mentioned, like Occupy and I get the sense that though that level of social unrest was like, I don't want to say like it wasn't real, but it wasn't like the mass. It was like, yeah, like a, like a vocal minority, not representative of like the typical working person. And like, yeah, like that can definitely, they might have legitimate concerns and it can definitely like tip over and cause wider unrest. But in general, like, that doesn't that doesn't scare me as much as like mass unemployment and like the average working person not being able to work and like feeling like they're getting screwed like that is super scary and i think you're seeing that um i think seeing that would be like really bad and to the extent that we can just like print money and hand it out and like make everyone happy i guess that seems fine I, I mean, it's not great. Like, I think people have a desire to <laughs> to work and do something and, you know, get pride from what they accomplish and like just saying, no, you can't do that. But here's here's Netflix instead. Like, that doesn't I'm not like a fan of that. Like, I mean, it's a separate conversation, <laughs> but maybe it maybe it's fine for a few months, you know, and I it seems like we have the appetite to do that as a as a government. So I guess that's that's good. But it is in the back of my mind that like things could get heated at some point. 
Yeah. And one industry in particular, a lot of people have been focusing on is the restaurant industry, food and beverage. Do you have any thoughts there as far as they're talking about maybe 70 to 80% of restaurants are going to be failing and they need, they need a bailout. Every industry needs a bailout right now, I guess. When you look at the top of the list, maybe being airlines, and well, like we talked about, bank, making sure the banking system is functioning first, and then the financial system, and then, um, and then you have even some private equity funds are trying to look for a bailout based on their portfolio companies that are these large retail brands. But when you look specifically at restaurants, what are your thoughts there? I mean. I- I think it gets at the question of bailouts in general. Like what what does it make sense to bail out how? I think kind of like in an abstract sense, I would bail out critical infrastructure. Like uh, we need we probably need airports and highways and obviously a lot of the critical infrastructure is publicly owned. I would throw financial infrastructure into that. Obviously not all of it, but like yeah. you know, deposits and and like credit cards and like this this basic plumbing that people rely on to live day to day i think like that needs to be under and obviously it's, it's basically been nationalized since 08 i mean maybe not in the in the letter of the law and in practice but in spirit it, it, i think it has been to a large degree i don't think private equity i don't think restaurants i don't think this stuff falls under that umbrella like we definitely shouldn't be bailing out airlines. Like, I mean, look, like I, I'm a shareholder in Delta. Like, I don't, I think we should, the airlines can't function as a profitable entity. Like let them fail. Like they flew through bankruptcy before they'll fly through bankruptcy again. Like it's, it's just the fact we have a good bankruptcy system for that, for that reason. And it's part of the, you know, yeah. part of the strengths of, of our economy. I mean, so, but getting to restaurants is interesting because now you're talking about, um, kind of this small, this area of like small business and, um, you know, there's not like a bunch of fat cats at the top, you know, or like it's not owned by a bunch of fat cats either typically. So I think the right way to approach it is critical infrastructure. You bail out and, you know, in a way that's, that's unfriendly to, to equity and everything else you let it fail, but you let it fail in a way that, where we can support the, um, there's got to be some kind of safety net, right? So like, rather than throwing money yeah. at small businesses and PE firms or whatever, like I would rather just send more of a check to everybody. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that was talked about on several well, several podcasts and a few articles that I read about getting inflation going, as we talked about, if, the, if they really want to get inflation going, they can just send everyone a $10,000 check or a $50,000 check or whatever, however much it takes. And um, and that is kind of the race to the bottom of a lot of these uh, central banks. And, you know, that's kind of the end game is to inflate away the debt and We've talked about on the podcast this push and pull um, with demographics, kind of demographics is destiny and uh, technology and kind of all these forces 
pulling down prices and, and causing this deflation. But it's interesting to think about how we could be shifting from a world of of that into something more inflationary. And as you talked about, everything is kind of setting up for that. And so we'll have to see how it plays out. And it's going to be probably a longer term type of scenario. But it's interesting to think about how how that paradigm shift could happen, especially when you have hardly anybody talking about or at least in the past six months, that's changed pretty fast. <laughs> but t- you hardly have anybody talking about being worried about inflation. Um, and there's right. been hardly any bid for gold and, and these other types of assets. Now, more recently, there has been. But um, so I think that's that's interesting to think about. Yeah. I, I mean, I've tried to wonder, like, how would that play out? Like, if you take the average person and give them 100 grand, what are they going to do with it? I feel like, I mean, we can, we kind of know statistically what it is. Like the average American has a bunch of debt and they're going to mostly pay it off, <laughs> which is um, deflationary. Do you think uh, they would, and, do you think they would pay off? The, sorry, sorry to interrupt you there, but do you think yeah. they would pay off the debt? Or would they, would they go out and spend more? Or I have a hard time picturing what it would get spent on on the margin i mean maybe Uh it's like my lack of imagination like i think obviously (laughs) people can spend lots of money right it's like but it but fair enough though fair enough on what will they spend money that would be a lot of people other than real and you could other than like urban real estate basically mm-hmm. which is where you have seen real inflation yeah uh, fair enough i could i could see that scenario playing out and, and being de- be deflationary as well um and so now oh, that's that's really interesting well i think to close here lay out any predictions you have or any thoughts for the next for kind of some longer term things and maybe not the next weeks and months but years to come that you've been thinking about and kind of forming a philosophy on and any subject that we've talked about here. Mm Hmm. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think, I think there is this obvious, so I guess one kind of meta point is I've tried to get better at noticing kind of like the big obvious trends and being more okay Mm -hmm. with not being a contrarian and just saying like that big obvious trend is just going to continue. And uh, that's going to have a bigger impact on everything else than all these like little things that we're trying to predict that we think will be a big deal and like getting 10% of them. Right. So, I mean, big obvious trends to me, like the stuff that we talked about, like I think Bitcoin is just going to become more uh, normalized as an institutional asset. And like, that doesn't mean the price is going to go up by a factor of 10, but I think it's going to like slowly go up over time um, as demand kind of outstrips supply on the margin. Um, I think the kind of the other big trend that we started seeing since, um, since 08 is the Fed and um, Treasury just being willing to inject liquidity uh, like whenever things get uncomfortable. And so I think we'll mm-hmm. just see more of that. Um, 
maybe that builds up into more moral hazard and that, you know, snaps at some point, but maybe not. But like, I think, I think we can safely say that they're not going to be shy to inject liquidity. Um, and yeah. kind of the other, the other big thing is uh, kind of one that we're, <laughs> we're probably all living right now is um, just way more uh, internet, right? Like, people spending more time at home, more time online. I mean, obviously they're just looking at the numbers, like people are basically spending about as much time as they can at this point. Um, but, you know, there's still things that we do in person that is going to be more and more online. Obviously like education is a big one. Um, work uh, from home rather than, um, you know, in a meeting in an office. And I, I don't know if one is better than the other. I mean, obviously in some cases, some cases we can make claims like that, but I think we'll just see more of it. Um, just because that's, that's been kind of the secular shift that's been occurring. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense too. I just saw, obviously the internet traffic has been through the roof and certain companies are trying to yeah. throttle and slow down yeah, internet, whether it's Netflix or other streaming services. And I saw uh, podcast listening is down slightly as far as yeah. people commuting during those times, but overall bullish, I think on, on the format and being able to do distance learning and, and do kind of long form interviews and uh, marketing type uh p- pitches and kind of interviews and things like that. So overall I'm, I'm bull- bullish on the platform here as far as podcasting. Right. Yeah, I agree. But, um, Gary, it was, it was great, great to have you and uh, we really appreciate your insights and um, we'll uh, have you back in uh, maybe a few months or whenever uh, some of these paradigm shifts or years, if the podcast is still rolling and, uh, <laughs> and, and get your newest takes, but uh, this was fun and I uh, really appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah, it was a pleasure as always, Ryan. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at JellyDonutPod. Or you can contact us via email at JellyDonutPodcast at ProtonMail.com. As a reminder... All opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.